This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, MD Advantage, UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we're going to answer all of your health questions today. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you. The last couple of programs were new programs, but they were taped in advance, uh, both having to do with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig's disease, so I am hope uh, that everyone learns something from that. And uh, as you know, in this program, uh, we're going to answer all of your health questions and bring you new information at health. We're kind of a respite from all the political bickering that everybody hears um, on talk radio these days. So um, with that, I want to bring everybody up to speed on a, on a few things. And the first thing I want to talk about is we have a guest on the phone, um, my daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa. Uh, Dr. Alessi LaRosa, as I said, is my daughter. She is a board-certified neurologist, and she just got back from Michigan, where she spent a year in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and actually at a clinic in Brighton, Michigan, doing a fellowship in sports neurology. So she's back. She's going to be at Hartford HealthCare, at the Hartford Bone and Joint Institute, working in the field of sports neurology. And she's got a talk coming up, and I wanted to talk to her a little bit about that. Hey, Steph, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? All right. Listen, just wanted to get you on quickly to talk about this this talk you're going to be giving this week on Thursday, concussion, fact versus fear. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and what's going to be discussed? Absolutely. So I think this is a very important topic for anybody, really, but focus is really for the the typical parent or coach or anybody really interested in concussion who, you know, has really been following the media coverage and is kind of fearful about concussion. That's, that's one of the main things I do see in the office is parents who are concerned. Um, and I think trying to straighten out what are the facts about concussion and what are the myths and trying to kind of dispel some of those myths for people based on the research that we know and what I see in clinic um, clinically and, you know, trying to sort of help people and parents and coaches and the general population navigate the media so that they're, they're aware of, of what really the issues are and, you know, when to be worried and when not to be worried. And, and really the, the bottom line is that there are much more benefits than risks when it comes to playing sports for kids. And that's the key here, which I think that message totally gets lost in the media and they really just want to harp on and, and make a bigger deal about the the problems, you know, and the issues from concussion and the long-term complications when really that's not the majority of the situation. So, so I really want to address people's questions. You know, there'll be a chance for them to ask questions and for, you know, me to just give my expertise and, um, you know, help people navigate, like I said. You know, there are so many questions I'm sure people have, and we always get them here, you know, uh, uh, wearing headbands in soccer, is youth football safe? What should they do? What shouldn't they do? But, Stephanie, do you think we've created a little bit of a paranoia um, to some degree? 
Yes, yeah. It really, uh, the information that's been coming out and that is being promoted by the media um, is really anxiety-provoking, I, I find. And, you know, parents just want to do right by their kids, and I totally understand that. Um, but, you know, really having the facts about, you know, when to be worried and is your kid at risk of having some of these issues you worry about. And I will be talking about CTE and chronic traumatic encephalopathy and, you know, really addressing some of those issues and, and a lot of the common questions I get in the office um, in order to help help patients and help their parents with that. Steph, we have to get you into the studio to talk more about this. But listen, thank you for calling in. Can you tell everybody where is the talk, when is the talk, and how do they get going? How do they get there? Sure. It's at Waterford High School in Waterford, Connecticut. It's going to be uh, Thursday, July 18th at 6 p.m. All right. Looking forward to hearing more about it, Steph. All right. Thank you. Take care. Uh, that was my daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa. Actually, so the reason she called in is she's on her way to a, a, a baby shower. She is due in October with our fifth grandchild, and uh, I'm obviously very proud of everything um, she's done. And and really, the information she's brought back for all of us uh, to learn from, especially coaches and families as we get into football season. Uh, this day in medicine, July 13th, 1629, Dr. Caspar Bartholin died. Now, when I looked up Dr. Bartholin, I-, I thought it was the Dr. Bartholin for whom they've named the glands after, uh, the vaginal glands. But actually, he is the grandfather of that Dr. Caspar Bartholin. Um, and their family is a long history of physicians and anatomists. Who have worked? They started in Sweden. Um, his grandson was born in Denmark. Uh, who eventually and there it was interesting just looking at this succession of medical scientists. But this day, July thirteenth, sixteen twenty nine, the most senior Doctor Caspar Bartholin had passed away. One of the things that came out this week, and I thought it was an interesting survey, is older adults feel good about their health. Now, when we think as we get old. People are complaining all the time about their health, but that's not actually the case. A recent survey um, showed that most are very positive about their health. This 2017 survey looked at 82% of adults aged 65 to 74 rate their health as excellent. Only 18% say it's very good. 7% say it's poor. Now, what's amazing is because we know that 60% 60% of all of all adults in that age group have at least two chronic medical problems like diabetes, high blood pressure, arthritis. Yet they still rate their health as excellent. So when they drill down on what makes their health excellent, when you talk to these adults, it is they define it as being able to do the things they like to do, interact with friends, Um, play certain sports, albeit modified. I mean, you have to change your life. But those changes can then incorporate other things you want to do. And that's what it is. It's that satisfaction, finding new ways of really accomplishing the things you want to do that help these people take this positive aspect. So it, it was a very interesting piece of information. 
The next thing I want to talk about is medical groups warn climate change. Um, and, and they warn that climate change is really a health emergency. It's the AMA, the American Heart Association, the American Lung Association. Uh, there are 74 groups that have come together and feel that we're facing a health emergency now in terms of climate change. Now, I'm not going to get into this as the, the Democrats say this, the Republicans say this. The, here's the point here. All the candidates who are running for president need to have some kind of plan here, any plan, okay, for trying to clean this up and trying to clean up the environment and preserve it because it's important to everyone's health. And that's going to lead me into my guest here in the studio. We're going to take a short break, but I'm going to be here with Dr. Omar Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is a pulmonologist. He specializes in lung cancer, thoracic oncology. So we're going to talk about lung disease today. That's our topic. We're going to talk about some new innovative ways of diagnosing lung cancer because we all know the sooner you make a diagnosis like that, the better you do, the better your outcome. Right. Most recently, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, by accident, when she broke her rib, they found out she had lung cancer. Right. Got to treat it quickly back to normal. That's the key. So Dr. Ibrahim is going to be here with us and we're going to talk a little bit about I'm probably going to ask him a little bit about climate change uh, and how that affects things. Let me give you the phone numbers. 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. Now, you can also reach me live by emailing at info at alessimd.com. If you don't want to call in and you have a question, we'll get the answer. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Omar Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is a thoracic oncologist. He is a, he specializes in pulmonology, pulmonary diseases at the University of Connecticut where he serves as the uh, director for interventional pulmonary diseases. Uh, Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about it. First of all, um, what's your education been like? How, how did you get to this point? So I um, I did my uh, residency in uh, down at SUNY Downstate in uh, Flatbush, Brooklyn, and then subsequently... For my pulmonary critical care training, I went to uh, Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia. Uh, during my time at uh, Jefferson, one of my co-fellows was going into this thing called interventional pulmonary, which I had never been exposed to before. Never really, I didn't know it was a thing. And uh, he started telling me about it, and I uh, subsequently I said, well, I definitely want to check it out. And I was uh, fortunate enough to apply as a trainee to go to Harvard for uh, a month and just to see what it was like. And within that short amount of time, I really fell in love with it, and um, I was fortunate enough to be accepted to their program and did a year of formal training. How'd you end up here? I mean, you're an MD, okay? You've done all this training. What did they, they you know, did they go on Indeed.com? How did they find you? Uh, so it was uh, something they were looking for. Uh, as the field was growing, uh, more procedures uh, based out of pulmonary were becoming uh, necessary. And uh, the hospital was making a push to make sure that they kept up with the times. Uh, and then so I had applied. And then after applying within a short amount of time, the hospital really 
committed into the idea and the process and looked at the outcomes that we were having with the patients to make it a full-fledged program. So let's talk about lung disease um, and specifically lung cancer. What are the statistics now? What what are we looking at in terms of lung cancer? Well, while there is a slimmer, uh, a, a glimmer of hope that over the last couple of years, the lung cancer rates have dropped slightly uh, within percentages, a few percentages. But overall, it's uh, it's pretty daunting. You take more than 150 deaths per year from lung cancer alone. Wow! And if you you know, a lot of attention is given to colon cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer. But those three cancers, uh, the rate of death between those three isn't as high as lung cancer alone. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I think there's a stigma associated with smoking, uh, and kind of people do this to themselves uh, who smoke. But that's you know, that's really not the case. A a significant percentage of patients who have never smoked are diagnosed with lung cancer. So let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, you said an interesting thing: the numbers may be coming down, even though they're staggering at 150,000 deaths a year. But do you think they're coming down because fewer people are smoking? I think so. I think that the, you know, what you have to look at is it's not the people who stop smoking in the last two three years, right? That have you know that are affecting the rates, but overall, you know, smoking has uh, it's harder to smoke. It's harder to find a place to smoke. You know, the the cost is going up as well as you know you you know to go to a bar or restaurant. You know, most places don't allow it. So I think that those things have helped because it's no longer in vogue as it used to be. All right. What about these vaping people? Okay. I mean, now I'm starting to see vaping. Okay. Does is that cause cancer? We don't know. Is there nicotine in that? So there is there is nicotine in it, but nicotine isn't necessarily the main carcinogen that we find in tobacco products. Uh, so while I don't encourage vaping and I don't think it's a good idea to pick up and start, especially younger, I, I see a lot of young kids uh, vaping at this point. Uh, is it better than smoking? Probably, but I we have no data to tell you that. And there's a lot of research go ongoing, and one of my colleagues is actually, uh, his focus is on this topic, what, to figure out what, what exactly vaping is doing to us. Let me ask you a question. Is there a difference? I've always, people who are non-smokers that get lung cancer, are their cancers typically more aggressive than smokers, or is it that we find it later? We usually find it later. That's, uh, that's what I thought. But because, I mean, I've had several people who, and patients who were non-smokers, and by the time we found their cancer, it was, it was more widespread than, I guess, a smoker would get more chest x-rays because they're always coughing up a lung. So what you find is that 50% of, more than 50% of all cancers are actually found at a later stage. And that's uh, unfortunately our best chance for cure is when we find it as soon as possible. All right. What about the environment? We touched on it earlier in the show, just talking about climate change. How much is the environment impacted lung cancer? And and not just in the United States, um, but in other countries. I mean, we see a lot more smoking in Europe, Asia. It's always been the case. Uh, I think numbers are starting to go down a little bit in Europe, but other than smoking numbers, what? How much is the environment affecting lung cancer? So, the 
the environment definitely plays a role into lung cancer. What you find is in a lot more industrial areas, the rate of lung cancer is higher than that of, of rural, more rural areas. Um, obviously, you know, that does coincide with some of the uh, tobacco use, you know, where you see that certain areas have a higher uh, incidence of tobacco use than others. But pollution, definitely carcinogens from the pollution products that are uh, put into the air definitely have a, any, a cause in um, increase the rates of uh, lung cancer for that area. Uh, if you take a, uh, for example, uh, you know, coal miners and those kinds of things, they had definitely had a higher incidence rate for lung cancer. That being said, we also look for it in those patients because they tend to be sure. sicker. They tend to come to the doctor with more colds, more coughing, bronchitis, that kind of thing. So we were finding it more often. Um, how about people in metropolitan areas? So when you think of you know living in a city where there may be more pollution from the standpoint of exhaust fumes and things such as that, is there a difference there? It's hard to say. I, I don't know that off the top of my head. But what I would say, though, is people in metropolitan areas probably have better access to to medical care. Um, and so their, their physicians are more accessible. So again, we probably find it more than in, uh, I guess, more of the rural areas. Um, but one one statistic that that touched me a little bit was that more than half of people with lung cancer die within a year of the diagnosis. So unfortunately, that goes with the uh, the when they're state when they're they're stage and usually at the time of diagnosis, I think that we're we're we just don't do a good enough job diagnosing people sooner. Uh, and I wish, you know, there were better ways to do it. Um, one of the the newer detection systems or the new uh, detection process that we have is uh, lung cancer screening. Uh, I equate it to a uh, a mammogram for high risk patients. So a high-risk patient to who could get screened for lung cancer with a, a CAT scan of the chest would be someone between the uh, ages of uh, 55 and 80. Certain criteria changes a little bit, but around that age group, more than a pack per day for 30 years, and they have not quit within 15 years. Those people, particularly at the highest risk of developing lung cancer, where it's actually beneficial to look do a CAT scan yearly, Looking for a specific, uh, suspicious lesion, which would lead to uh, you know you have the biopsy, and then likely, if we're fortunate enough, catch it sooner, resection. You know, several years ago, we had a pulmonologist, actually, it was a thoracic surgeon on who was beginning to do CAT scans as screening tests. And at that point, I, it's probably more than five years ago that he was on, and, and back at that time, that was fairly revolutionary uh, to do a CT scan as a scanning as a, a screening test. And there's always resistance from an insurance company from that standpoint. Have you found resistance? In other words, is there still that resistance to approving a CT of the chest at someone who might be at risk? So, yes, unfortunately. And if you look at the guidelines, the guidelines are pretty clear about who qualifies and who doesn't qualify. But, you know, what if you have somebody who quit, you know, 16 years ago, and they have a family history of, you know, four of their, uh, you know, immediate family members have a history of lung cancer. They actually don't qualify for a low-dose screening scan, and it will be denied. So there's there's room to to change that threshold, and we have to work with the insurance companies to really, really tease out who's high risk, because 
the criteria is pretty clear, but the criteria is more of a I think should be more of a guideline than an actual um, law. Well, absolutely. And you said a key word there, a low-dose screening test, because people are saying, well, sure, they're going to give me radiation from the CT scan. I'm going to get cancer from that. So uh, why don't you just describe what you mean by the low-dose screen? So the a low-dose screening CT scan will actually give uh, a much lower dose of the radiation and exposure that a standard CAT scan would uh, give somebody that, say, comes into the hospital with some chest pain, and we'd have to – we're looking for the etiology of that – where a low-dose screening scan is a very it's a, it's a it's a scan it's very short and the amount of cuts in it are are minimal in order just to we're looking for suspicious lesions we're not looking to look at the architecture of the lung and diagnose rare uh, lung diseases what we're trying to find are suspicious nodules that could be cancer we're chatting today with Dr. Omar Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is uh, an assistant professor of medicine, actually, at UConn. He's director of interventional pulmonology. The phone numbers here are 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back in the second half. We're going to talk about some new innovative ways of diagnosing lung cancer early that are available at the University of Connecticut. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're chatting with my guest, Dr. Omar Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is an assistant professor of medicine and director of interventional pulmonology at the University of Connecticut. And we have some questions. So I think we're going to get into some questions first right here. Um, Brenna, you're on the phone. Uh, yes, I am. Good. Uh, and I have a question to Dr. Ibrahim. Um, I was diagnosed, I'm an 86-year-old uh, lady that never smoked, and I was diagnosed with uh, NSIP, nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis. Okay. okay. Uh, I, would, I would appreciate a more general description, what to expect and what kind of a disease that is. I would appreciate your input, uh, doctor. So um, did you have a biopsy? No. Okay. Um, I, I do have some nodules in my lungs uh, that have not been biopsied, and it was deemed as as perhaps uh, more invasive than they'd like to do at this time. So um, NSIP has a certain characteristic seen on CT scan. Uh, it's usually a steroid-responsive disease by the sense of uh, we usually give uh, prednisone and uh, medications like that, which usually will decrease the amount of inflammation going on in the lungs. And a lot of times you see a regression of these findings for NSIP. Uh, for most interstitial pneumonias, we have a few medications. Um, some are uh, uh, prednisone, as others are what we call biologic therapies, where it helps your, uh, it calms down your immune system, so to speak. Uh, NSIP is not necessarily associated with cancer in itself. We do find that patients who do have interstitial lung disease have a slightly higher rate of uh, lung cancer. Uh, but that being said, a lot of times when if somebody does have something which is characteristic of NSIP, uh, in my practice and my colleagues' practice, 
if they're not too symptomatic, we observe uh, because sometimes the treatment is worse than the actual disease. It sounds like the case here, uh, why they're not going in and doing a bronchoscopy or something of that nature. Um, Brenna, you're not on oxygen for support or anything like that? Uh, I, I just had a breathing test, and I'm seeing uh, my, my pulmonary doctor uh, uh, next week. So uh, I don't know what's going to uh, be going okay. on. But I was on an extended period of prednisone that uh, you're certainly uh, right that is not a, um, uh, it may do something inside, but doesn't make you feel very well. Yeah. It was like f- uh, f- 30 milligrams, uh, uh, then it went down. It took about three months, the therapy, and it did uh, uh, stop the, the, the process to up to a point uh, or lowered it. Okay. Uh, the, the diffusion. Okay. Okay. Well, best of luck with that, uh, Brenna. Let us know. But it's basically, it's not a curable disease, is it? Treatable. It's tri- it's a treatable, treatable problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think okay. that's that's all you could hope for. All right. Take okay. care. Thank you very much for uh, your input. Uh, you're Thank welcome. You for the call. Bye-bye. Okay, next up, uh, we have Bill uh, with an interesting question about radon um, and radon detection, which is... Uh, Omar, it's it's become a, a whole industry, right, Bill? Yes. So let's. What was your question about radon? Uh, I understand. I understand that it's twelve uh, percent of lung cancer is from radon. That's what I understood, and uh, I know it comes up out of the ground. It's all over the place, and it gets captured in homes, and can the level can get high. Anything over a four, I believe, is. Uh, they recommend that you do something about it, mitigate. And uh, I've had a couple of homes. That one was 18 reading. One was about an 8. And I mitigated both homes and got it down to about a 2, 1 or 2. And I worked with a lady whose husband uh, uh, died from lung cancer, and they said it was uh, due to radon, exposure to radon in his home. And they mitigated. Somebody, she had somebody mitigate the home, and get the radon level down below four. Uh, I was wondering if he's going to talk about that at all. Sure, why not? Uh, Omar, what do you think about this? So the, you know, it's um, like smoking. You know, radon is one of these things where we find an association. It's very hard to find the causality for any particular insult, such as smoking or uh, radon. I I can't tell you that, you know, smoking caused... Cancer. That's what I was going to say because the tumor doesn't look any different if it was caused by radon or smoking. Correct. Right? Okay. So and then and so radon doesn't cause. I can't tell you that radon caused cancer, and I think that's a, it's a very. Uh, what you find is that you know you need the right host and the right insult in order to cause, unfortunately, disease. Uh, but there is definitely association with radon and um, lung and lung cancer. You find that. When, aside from smoking, it's the second leading cause of what we can associate with lung cancer. Uh, and you're right. It's a, it's a gas. It's everywhere. And what we find is that um, we find it in ba- particularly basements because the, it's not well ventilated. So the gas accumulates. And once the, the gas becomes uh, more than four parts per million, I believe uh, that's a number, they recommend mitigation because those are the that's when the the rates of lung cancer will increase after it's four parts per million. The system is actually pretty straightforward and pretty simple to put in. On um, you know, in most houses, they kind of put a uh, put a vent put a pipe into the uh, 
into the the base of the house and it, a fan and the fan will suck the air out up to the top of the up and out the house uh it's when they're put in on newer homes it's much easier to put in but that being said no. it's not terrible i had a system placed in my house and my my rates were normal we had we tested it and it was below 4 but i just you know in good conscience something that's avoidable i have young girls sure, why not? so you know i put it in it's it you know obviously Everything's relative, but the system I think can go from somewhere between seven hundred to a thousand dollars, depending on the layout of your house. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Hey, Bill. Thank you for calling. Okay. Thanks, thanks for answering the question. No uh, problem. You know, I think one of the things we get away from is that probably lung cancer, like most cancers, are multifactorial. I mean, we, we've always heard of people who have smoked their whole lives and never got cancer, right? Correct. Uh, but certainly, there are people who didn't smoke and got cancer. I mean, there are so many factors. There's radon. There's smoking. There's genetics. We haven't talked about that. Is there, if someone has a family history of lung cancer, are they in that higher risk that should be screened by CT scanning? So it's funny because it's talked about, but when we had mentioned the touch on insurance companies, it's not a reason to do the scan and it won't be approved. A lot of um, hospitals, and I know Leahy Clinic was really good about this when they first came out. For those that there were, you know, those who qualified, it was free, and those who didn't qualify, they were doing the scans for I think a hundred dollars or somewhere around there for patients who were who were high risk but maybe didn't meet the exact criteria. Uh, so unfortunately, no. But you know, my level of suspicion when I see somebody with a pulmonary nodule. If they have a strong family history of lung cancer, you know, I tend to lean more towards a biopsy at that point than observation. So at what point do you think people are just going to take money out of their pocket? I mean, a CT scan isn't that expensive uh, when you get down to it. I mean, uh, we're talking 500 bucks now, I mean, for a non-contrast CT scan. Um, at what point is somebody going to say, listen, this insurance company is not responsive, but I'm not going to let them determine my future. Do you think we're going to get to the point where people are just going to say, listen, I got $500. I'm going to go get the scan. I think it's, I mean, it has happened. There are people who just don't qualify and they want to, they want to know. Unfortunately, what you find though, sometimes is when people get a a screening CAT scan, they look at that as a, a kind of clean bill of health, (laughs) you know, saying, okay, I don't have lung cancer. I'm going to go start smoking. Or I'm going to continue smoking. And unfortunately, it just means at this moment and this day, there was nothing there that was suspicious. That's right. All right, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back to talk about the Monarch system. This is something we all need to know about. It's a way of detecting lung cancer sooner. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and this has been a great discussion with Dr. Omar Ibrahim. Dr. Ibrahim is the Director of Interventional Pulmonology. Omar, let's talk a little bit about this Monarch system. It's a system uh, you have at the University of Connecticut, and it's a robotic kind of computerized system to look at lung cancer. Can you talk a little bit about it? Uh, My pleasure. So, Bronchoscopy had not changed for, you know, 10, 20 years without any significant revolutionary uh, changes. And then um, two companies actually uh, really started pushing the envelope forward and saying, we need to 
we need to do something and we need to you know help help uh, the pulmonologist and help the thoracic surgeons uh, in their fight for lung cancer and um, one of those companies was Oris and um, Oris uh, developed a monarch platform and they were the first company to do for um, to, to get a FDA approval to in use of humans for a uh, for this type of equipment. So the equipment is a, essentially uh, a bronchoscope that telescopes and it gets really small. And the the really innovative part is that because they're able to get it's able to get smaller and with telescoping and getting smaller, you maintain your sight. The vision is always on. Uh, and then it has a small working channel where you can uh, stick out needle and forceps to take biopsies. The the platform also is accompanied by a, um, a basically a computer-generated pathway and a virtual bronchoscopy that is taken from the CAT scan that the patients had where we identified the nodule. And the goal is to find these nodules and really take patients out of the waiting room and observation and ideally into the OR to have resection. Um, you know, the best chance for survival is when we catch somebody with a stage 1 disease and we resect. That's, that is... That is that is where we're going for, and that, that's, that's what this company has decided to put their money into and really focus in, so much so that uh, Johnson & Johnson believed in their mission so much that they actually acquired the company with a, a couple months ago. And you know, Johnson & Johnson has a, a whole initiative, which is focusing on lung cancer. Now, you said several things that, well, first of all, even the word bronchoscopy makes me want to gag, okay? Because I remember the old days from... 30 or more years ago, and it was a pretty uncomfortable procedure. It sounds like it's become less uncomfortable. So, correct. I think the um, bronchoscopy has changed dramatically over the last, you know, uh, 10, uh, 10 to 20 years. And kind of going along with my training, when we're doing more advanced procedures and we're really working in a tight, intricate spaces, the procedure is now you know, it can be done under moderate sedation where they give a little bit of medication to kind of take the edge off. Uh, now, the majority of the procedures that I do are under general anesthesia. So this way, you know, the patient can get an answer sure. when they go under, you know, and there's, uh, you know, they wake up and, you know, they're no worse for the wear, uh, but uh, ideally have a diagnosis and a possible stage to so we can move forward with their treatment. So this telescoping... Uh, that also caught my attention. So it can get so the camera itself can get smaller and smaller as it proceeds into the passageway. So the camera is actually the same size, but the the yeah, channel actually, the, yeah. the, the channel that works that it works with uh, gets smaller, and um, uh, so the device is you know I equate it to uh, kind of a, a Chinese uh, finger trap where it kind of yeah. goes and then then it's then it snakes out from even smaller. So once you get to a certain point and the airways have narrowed down, the inner part will advance. And insurance covers all that? Correct. Okay. So in that, at what stage do you get to do that? Is that after someone's had a chest x-ray, CAT scan, time for bronchoscopy? So what happens, uh, the typical patient will have a cough or some... For some reason, uh, they have a chest X-ray. There's something seen on the chest X-ray. They ended up ha then they end up having a CAT scan, and with that CAT scan, we see a spot that is is or isn't suspicious for lung cancer. And how we decide whether spots are suspicious or not are based upon the size is probably the biggest thing. The characteristics of it is it round? Does it have sharp edges? Uh, and then we also take into account the patient's history. 
you know, do they smoke? Do they have radon exposure? Uh, is there a family history of lung cancer? And then we deem the patient to be either high, low, or intermediate risk. And then at that point in time, we talk to them about how they want to proceed. And, you know, for a high-risk patient, a high-risk nodule, we usually proceed to a biopsy. Let's talk a little bit about the future. Uh, what is the future? In other words, after, in treating and diagnosing lung cancer, um, we talked about some fairly cutting-edge ideas here, but where do you think we're going in terms of this treatment and diagnosis? So the, the really great thing about the Monarch platform is that it gives us an opportunity to go directly to the tumor and to actually treat the tumor specifically. So a couple of these things which are in our in the research realm now, but I would imagine within hopefully in the next uh, you know four to five years they'd be uh, practice. It would um, one is to go in to the lesion or the nodule, take a biopsy, identify that it's cancer, and at that same time in that same sitting that that procedure was done, is we pass uh, an ablation catheter through that channel and essentially burn the tumor with radio radio frequency. And so at that point in time, you've diagnosed, staged, and treated the patient. And there's no need for surgery because we've already made the diagnosis. And for patients who have advanced stage, um, they're really doing some amazing things with uh, gene therapy and um, virus therapy where we would actually inject the tumor directly with treatment. That's what I wanted to talk about a little bit, okay, because I think when we think of lung cancer, we think of all these toxic drugs. I mean, and just let's face it, we're filling you with poison trying to kill this stuff. But when we talk about immunotherapy and gene therapy, obviously less toxic. And just talk a little bit about the virus therapy. So the, I mean, this is, at this point in time, it's still experimental, but the idea is to inject the tumor and with with a virus. And then, and with... um so when those commingle, essentially now that tumor is going to be distributed throughout the body. The bi- then you give the medication to attack the vi- to attack the the virus, which is now in those cells. So uh, the goal is to really minimize the amount of toxic effects of, as you said, chemotherapy and agents, where we're treating specifically the tumor. We're trying to avoid all the good cells and just hit the cells that we've targeted that have cancer. I think this is amazing, and uh, it's great for me. First, I want to thank you for being here today, but uh, it's great for me to see young people like you really on the cutting edge of this type of science and in working in cancer treatment. Um, I I want to thank you, first of all, for coming to Connecticut and really bringing this technology here and helping develop it. I hope we'll get you back on the air soon. Absolutely. Now, Connecticut's been really good to me, so thank you. That's great. Um, next week on Healthy Rounds, uh, we're going to have uh, Patricia Cassante. Doc, well, Ms. Cassante is actually the president and CEO of MD Advantage. MD Advantage is one of the premier medical malpractice companies. And she's going to talk to us a little bit about the research they've done in physician burnout. And it's something we've talked about on this program regularly how we get around that, how do we keep physicians in practice. These folks at MD Advantage have some innovative plans that they are just bringing to Connecticut to make medical malpractice insurance more affordable 
and more effective. Many thanks to our studio producer today. Matt's been on the board for us, and Jeff Chandler's been in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Please make sure to download the Healthy Rounds podcast. You can listen to today's show and a lot of our previous shows by downloading that. You just go to iTunes uh, and download that. Again, as another reminder, if you're interested in concussion and sports, I recommend you get to Concussions, Fact and Fear, uh, July 18th at Waterford High School Auditorium, uh, sponsored by Waterford Football. My daughter, Dr. Stephanie Alessi LaRosa, will be the guest speech speaker and will answer all your questions about your children and their involvement in high school sports going forward. Is there a real threat in terms of the sports they're playing and the importance of working with a coach that is much more knowledgeable about these problems? Next up on WTIC is going to be Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.